welcome to another episode of America's Constitution, and happy Constitution Day. Uh, I'm Andy Lipka, and I'm here with the Constitution man himself, Professor Akil Amar. Hello, Akil. Hey, Andy, and why did you tell them why it's Constitution Day? Because on September 17th, 1787, the Philadelphia Convention uh, released the draft constitution to the people to begin debating its ratification. Well done. And remember that I think that that year is the hinge of human history, the year that changed everything, the year that the world basically began to become a democratic world because we, the people of the United States, up and down an entire continent, got a chance to debate and vote on this proposed constitution. And that hadn't happened in any of the ancient democracies that had uh, pre-existed the American Revolution, putting something to a vote. Indeed, the Declaration of Independence in 1776 wasn't put to a vote. None of the state constitutions in 1776, important though they were, were put to a vote. The Articles of Confederation uh, drafted in 1777 and ultimately operative in 1781, not put to a vote. A couple of states did put their constitutions to a vote in 1780 in Massachusetts and 1784 in New Hampshire. But putting the proposed constitution of the United States to a vote up and down a continent uh, in the year that changed everything, a year that began at the end of the Philadelphia Convention, September 17th, 1787, that changed everything in the world. Wow. Um, and that's why we celebrate Constitution Day. For us insiders, it's a big deal in America's Constitution, but we're hoping that one day it will be a bigger deal everywhere in America, up there with July 4th, which is not quite yet, um, but deserves to be. So by the time you hear all this, uh, audience, it'll be Constitution Week, I suppose. Um, but on on Saturday, on the 17th, um, Akil uh, appeared on C-SPAN, to uh, mark Constitution Day, and actually, America's Constitution, the po- our podcast, was one of the stars of the show. So we encourage you all to listen to that segment uh, of the show, Washington Journal, and we're going to post a link to it uh, in the show notes. Now, in honor of Constitution Week, we have some great podcast news, uh, which we're going to hold for the end of this episode. So please stay with us to the end today. And I know you will share our excitement. So Akil has been and will be all over the place. And we want to encourage you to follow our Twitter feed. Uh, just search on Twitter for America's Constitution and follow the resulting tweets. Uh, we've begun to be more active on our Twitter feed because we've had a number of inquiries about Professor Mars events. So this is an easy way to see you know, where he's appearing, who's commenting on the work, who's engaging with the podcast, you know, in the national media. Uh, and we expect, you know, a lot more value on the Twitter feed uh, as this grows. And of course, this is related to our request to, you guessed it, tell three people. So tell three people about the podcast, and you could also share the Twitter feed with them for uh, good measure. Okay, so Akil, last time we left off with some promises. Uh, we promised that we would explain how again and again, including decades after President Lincoln's death, when the Supreme Court would stumble, Abraham Lincoln would be shown to be constitutionally correct 
uh, again and again. And so we will. And we also told you that in connection with our Fifth Amendment discussion, we would show you uh, four ways that we can get from where we are now as a nation in Fifth Amendment uh, jurisprudence uh, to where Professor Amar maintains we ought to be. And we'll also keep our promise to discuss how we might get five justices to agree to one or more of these these pathways. And, you know, I think it's particularly appropriate this week uh, because the Constitution seeks to help us achieve a more perfect union, but that project, as, we, as we've seen, you know, all too well recently, uh, requires the people's participation, the participation of we the people. So this week, uh, Constitution Week, we aim here to do our part uh, in the service of this goal. And it's also appropriate on Constitution Week that we note the passing uh, of an important constitutional actor, uh, if a controversial one. And in fact, uh, Akhil will, will tell you um, how he's connected in a way that actually almost no one knew prior to this podcast to our recent discussions. Uh, so Kenneth Starr, a very consequential constitutionalist, has passed away. Most people know him because of his work as independent counsel, pursuing investigations into President Clinton and Hillary Clinton and other members of Clinton world. He was also, though over the course of his life, a very distinguished judge on the United States Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit, often considered the, the second highest court in the land, a, a kind of launching pad for the Supreme Court. And indeed, he was a prominent contender for the Supreme Court at various points. He, he might very well have been appointed to the Supreme Court had it not been for his work as independent counsel, which generated a lot of controversy. He was Solicitor General of the United States. We've had on our podcast before, Acting Solicitor General uh, Neil Katyal. He was also a legal uh, academic. He was the dean of the Pepperdine Law School, where I was a visiting professor for many uh, summers. And I want to say, it's very important for me to say that he was my friend. And we're going to do an episode in his honor going forward, and we'll share with you, the audience, some of the criticisms of of some of the things that he did. In fact, I myself sharply criticized many of his actions as independent counsel, but here's what's really extraordinary, and I'll, I'll share those criticisms with the audience. They appeared in major places, the Washington Post, the New Republic, and elsewhere. They're reprinted in some of my books, but here's the thing. Even though I sharply criticized some of his actions, it was never personal, and he never took it that way, and he was always the gentlest of friends. Indeed, he blurbed a book that I wrote that had criticism of his conduct as independent counsel, and law at its best, I think, should be that way. He was a Republican. I was and am a Democrat. We didn't agree on everything, but there was genuine affection and friendship between us. My kids called him Uncle Ken. He has stayed at my house. I've stayed at his house. My heart goes out to his widow, Alice, and their children and, and grandchildren. So we're going to have a whole episode with some remembrances of Star in keeping with our episodes, remembering the passing of the great Walter Dellinger. 
another solicitor general, actually acting solicitor general of the United States, um, on, on behalf of Team Clinton. In fact, we had other episodes um, uh, on other um, extraordinary legal figures of the last several generations, Telford Taylor, Hugo Black. So, so we'll have an episode on Ken Starr, but as I was beginning to think about who I wanted to have on that episode and some of the stories I wanted to share with the audience, I just strolled down memory lane um, because it turns out um, quite coincidentally that the most important case of the last quarter century rejecting my reform ideas for Fifth Amendment self-incrimination is actually a case that Ken Starr was involved in. It was a case involving Webster Hubble. And I'm going to just read the um, Wikipedia discussion of the Webster-Hubble case. We'll, we'll talk about it some more, maybe in this future Ken Starr episode. If you've been following audience members, our Fifth Amendment self-incrimination saga thus far, the facts of the Webster-Hubble case are going to seem quite eerily familiar. This case involved, says Wikipedia, the second prosecution of Webster-Hubble by the independent counsel. And Hubble, by the way, was a prominent officer in the Clinton administration. Indeed, he was an associate attorney general. The prosecution arose from the independent counsels, that is Ken Starr's, attempt to determine whether Hubble had violated a promise, part of a plea agreement, to cooperate in the Whitewater investigation. In October 1996, while Hubble was in jail as a result of the conviction of the conviction on a guilty plea in the Whitewater case, the independent counsel, that is Ken Starr's office, served him with a subpoena, Ducas Tecum, calling for the production of 11 categories of documents before a grand jury. So this sounds sound like People versus Kelly, isn't it? In November 1996, Hubble appeared before the grand jury and, you guessed it, invoked his Fifth Amendment privilege against self-incrimination. In response to questioning by the prosecutor, Hubble initially refused to state whether there are any documents within my possession, custody, or control responsive to the subpoena. That's a quote. The prosecutor then produced an order which had been obtained by the district court directing Hubble to respond to the subpoena and granting him immunity, quote, to the extent allowed by law. So he's getting immunity, just as we've been talking about. Hubble then produced 13,000 120 pages of documents and records. He also responded to a series of questions that established that the produced documents were all of the documents in his custody or control that were responsive to the commands in the subpoena. The contents of the documents produced by Hubble provided the independent counsel with the information that led to the second prosecution. So you see use and use fruits, you see. Case reaches the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court rules in favor of Hubble. The court held that the Fifth Amendment privilege against self-incrimination protects a witness from being compelled to disclose the existence of incriminating documents that the government is unable to describe with reasonable particularity. The court also ruled that if the witness produces such documents pursuant to a grant of immunity, the government may not use them to prepare criminal charges against him. So the very things we've been talking about here, use and use fruits immunity, that was at the heart of the Hubble case. 
uh, independent counsel star wanted to use some of those fruits, and the court shut him down, basically rejecting a version of, of my theory. That was back in February of 2000. Now, I'm hoping that, um, as you're going to hear today, audience members, uh, the court today might have a different view. There are different arguments, I think, that can be uh, put before the court. But just one final little tidbit, when I was strolling down memory lane and trying to refresh my recollection about all of that, I just did a little research, and I came across an earlier case, an, er an earlier brief in the United States Supreme Court. It was an earlier part of this whitewater investigation, and it was a brief in a case called, it was about attorney-client privilege, a case called Swidler and Berlin versus United States, and here's how the brief opens, with the names of the lawyers for the United States. Kenneth W. Starr, independent counsel, and his two assistants, Brett M. Kavanaugh and Craig S. Lerner. Our audience knows Brett Kavanaugh, Craig S. Lerner, um, is the spouse of Renee Leto Lerner, who was my co-author in the Fifth Amendment First Principles piece that I've been summarizing for the audience. So, wow, it's a small world in America's constitution. So I imagine that, that the arguments that were used uh, in the brief were probably somewhat familiar to readers of Fifth Amendment First Principles. Is that Indeed. the case? Yes. Yeah. And the court shut it down. 25, uh, 20 plus years ago, but as we're going to hear today, hope still springs eternal for Akil, and and there are pathways, I think, uh, by which the court could reverse course, as of course, it reversed course when it came to Roe versus Wade recently, you know, 20 years ago, I pitched a piece, Andy, in the Washington Post, pitching the idea of 18 years for the Supreme Court, and just today, the Washington, or yesterday, on Constitution Day, the Washington Post had an op-ed saying, oh, we think that 18-year idea is a good one. So sometimes the wheels grind slowly in the world of a Marcus Constitution, but sometimes they do grind. So, they, so you, uh, you won your, your appeal in the uh, Supreme Court of uh, Journalism, and uh, you know, perhaps you'll, you'll win it one day. But of course, this illustrates another point that we've been uh, hammering away at at times, which is that if your arguments were purely based on precedent, it would be hard to go back, given that the precedent is against you at this point, and say, well, you should, you should find you know, this way because your precedents say so, because they right. don't say so. But the Constitution right. says what it's always said, so you can make an argument on that basis. And so, indeed, I tried to identify for Fifth Amendment first principles. That said... As we're going to hear in today's episode, often the way you get from point A, the, the, the status quo, to point B is by moving the precedents in a certain order, in a certain way. You're interested in grand strategy, and grand strategy is often about lining up things in a certain sequence. Yes. Well, okay, so more to come on that, um, and I'm, I'm glad that you pointed out that and star complex figure, and we'll be exploring that complexity. And just to repeat, a friend, uh, uh, someone who, who's passing, I want to note in very personal terms, we didn't always agree on everything, but he was oh so generous to me, and many people who knew him well shared that view, 
which is not always the view that I think many of our audience members got from the mainstream media. Yeah, for example, if you saw the way he was portrayed on Law and Order, and <laughs> where they had a character that obviously echoed, even looked like him. Um, I think going after Jack McCoy. Yes. 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 Okay, well, again, it's Constitution Week, and we're going to turn our, our thoughts in a few minutes uh, to the great Abraham Lincoln. But again, we want our audience to remember you know, what we all have in common, which is uh, our Constitution. So, yes, Andy, we have a, a constitutional text that unites us as Americans, but we also have a constitutional narrative, a saga, and a set of, frankly, heroes of that saga. They're what we have in common as Americans. We, we call them the founding fathers, whether we lineally descend from them or not. I don't, by, as a matter of blood, descend from any of the, the folks in the founding era, and yet I can talk about George Washington and John Adams and Benjamin Franklin and Alexander Hamilton and James Madison as the founders and the fathers of my constitution, our constitution. And our audience will know, will remember that, of course, I think that one founder preeminently stands above all others, George Washington. He's the indispensable man. It's really his constitution more than anyone's. That's the argument that I make, of course, in the recent book, The Words That Made Us. And I think it has implications if true. See, I say he's the guy that is the presiding officer of the Philadelphia Convention, unanimously selected. The Constitution is basically drafted in his image, in effect, by him, for him, especially the executive branch is crafted for him, in effect, by him. He gets what he wants when it comes to the executive branch. The Constitution is ratified in large part because Americans understand that he's behind it and he will be the first president if asked. And he's not only asked, but he's unanimously elected the first president. Every elector votes for him. Every member of the Electoral College is unanimously re-elected. And his view of the meaning of the Constitution, I argued, as a certain kind of originalist, carries special weight, especially his view of the executive branch, the branch designed for him, the branch that, that he occupies as its first chief executive. So uh, that's our audience will remember a big theme of my assessment earlier in this originalism series of the so-called decision of 1789. The absolutely rock solid idea today, 9-0 on the Supreme Court, embraced by liberals and conservatives just across the spectrum, that presidents get to fire cabinet officers at will, especially the Secretary of Defense, which back then was called Secretary of War, Treasury Secretary, Attorney General, and Secretary of State. Now, if Washington looms particularly large for a certain kind of originalist, trying to think about the founding moment, and for me he does, and I've given you reasons why, because um, the Constitution is designed by and for him, and his views matter a lot, especially on the executive branch. In effect, the Constitution delegates to Washington, in effect, the authority to refine the details and sharpen the edges, the contours of executive power in America. If that's true of Washington at the founding, well, the next constitutional moment is going to be especially true 
of Abraham Lincoln. Before I get to Lincoln, I should just say Madison's views about the Bill of Rights loom rather large for me because he is a particularly important figure in crafting the Bill of Rights, as is Jefferson, for that matter. And of course, Washington is a big backer of the Bill of Rights as well. Now, flash forward from the founding era, where we have especially significant Washington and Hamilton when it comes to executive power as well, when it comes to rights, Jefferson and and Madison. For the next great constitutional moment, it's Lincoln above all others. Washington looms above his contemporaries, but, but there is Madison, there is Jefferson, there is Hamilton, there is Franklin, there is John Adams. In the Reconstruction era, it's Lincoln preeminently. And what's really interesting, Andy, is it turns out that Lincoln looms large, not just in my vision of Fifth Amendment self-incrimination doctrine, but actually in four other related areas of constitutional law that we have talked about recently. So actually, in five different ways, I'm going to basically be a Lincoln man, say Lincoln, 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 as opposed to a precedent person. And the particular precedents that I think are actually quite rather dubious are precedents from the 1880s and 90s, the Lochner era. And in five different contexts, we're actually going to see that we should be Lincoln originalists rather than Lochner era precedent people. Of course, it's a little different in this case than Washington because Lincoln is dead when when uh, you know these things uh, you know happen. But uh, and that's why it's really important to, for example, to create a political party that can carry on your vision and have helpers who can actually encode your vision into not just statutes but the Constitution. Remember, though, that the Thirteenth Amendment, which begins actually the, the Reconstruction cluster of amendments, actually is pushed by Lincoln. He doesn't live to see it ratified, but he's the one who gets it through Congress. That's the movie. That's Spielberg's movie, Lincoln. And in fact, his name actually appears on the amendment that Congress proposed. They actually sent it up to the the White House. They realized later that was a mistake. Presidents actually don't formally play a role in the amendment process. It's two-thirds of the House, two-thirds of the Senate, three-quarters of the states. It doesn't need a president's signature. It's not presented typically for his veto. But they they did it accidentally with the 13th Amendment, and Lincoln Lincoln was very quick to sign it because he he wanted history to remember that this was his idea, his amendment, in effect. And it was. Yeah, I think it's analogous to a – you know, baseball player signing a bat, you know, that he hit a a home run with. You know, he didn't have to sign the bat in order for the home run to count. Okay, so let's talk about, because this is part of an originalism series, I think there are going to be five different and interestingly related episodes where I'm going to say Lincoln and I'm going to reject precedent of a certain sort in originalist fashion. Let's first begin with Dobbs, because that's what really launched really our conversation about originalism. Dobbs, of course, overturns Roe versus Wade, and Roe versus Wade is based on a, a doctrine called substantive due process that in turn has roots in a case called Lochner and a case called Dred Scott, and the Dobbs case overrules Roe and Casey, 
um, both of which are substantive due process cases of a certain sort, and tries to cut substantive due process down to size and in the process actually says some things in effect about the Lochner era and in effect about Dred Scott. The Casey dissent by Justice Scalia, of course, features Dred Scott front and center. So let's talk about all of that, about Dobbs and what it means for originalism and how it's going to connect actually very interestingly to Lincoln on the one hand versus precedent on the other. And for those of you who haven't tuned into our earlier uh, episodes on Dobbs, we've had nine episodes. Uh, At on least. The, yeah, on, <laughs> on Dobbs. But um, but a frequently heard refrain that is that, uh, you know, as a policy matter, both Akil and myself are pro-choice, um, and we favor robust abortion rights uh, for women. But um, this is a, a more a matter of whether the reasoning uh, in row was was sound or not, and uh, and how Dobbs addresses that. So let's start with precedent and an egregiously wrong precedent at that. Dred Scott. Dred Scott says three f- things fundamentally. First, blacks can't be citizens. Second, only citizens have constitutional rights. And so, therefore, blacks don't have any constitutional rights. Even if free, even if if their home state calls them a citizen, even if they vote in state elections, even if their grandfather fought at Bunker Hill, as free blacks did, and voted in Massachusetts, as free blacks did. Dred Scott says blacks, even if free, can never be citizens constitutionally, at least under the federal constitution. Only citizens have constitutional rights. And it also says that Congress can't prohibit slavery in the territories. And that, therefore, Lincoln's vision of prohibiting slavery in the territories is unconstitutional. The budding Republican Party's vision of free soil, the Wilmot Proviso, no slavery in the territories, is unconstitutional. That's what Dred Scott says. It overprotects property in a certain way. It says slaveholders have a right to carry their property um, anywhere they want, including onto federal soil. And when Congress passes a law saying slaveholders who bring their slaves onto federal free soil will forfeit their slaves, will lose their slaves, the Dred Scott court says that's a violation of, in effect, substantive due process. That's a deprivation of property that's unconstitutional, even though Congress has passed free soil laws with fair procedures, bicameralism, presentment, even though those free soil laws are being enforced in fair ways in courts with judges and juries. The court in Dreskot overprotecting property, using a concept that will later come to be known as substantive due process, says Congress can't do that. Now, Lincoln thinks that's preposterous. He calls it an astonisher in legal history. He runs against Dred Scott. He ultimately wins the presidency by opposing the Dred Scott case. That's actually his platform. Dred Scott says this, and it's wrong, and it's egregiously wrong, and we're, it's an astonisher in legal history, and I, Abraham Lincoln, am going to lead a party that's going to undo that. That's actually what he says. And Dred Scott says several things, but let's just stick with the substantive due process thread, and then we're going to come back to Dred Scott and at least one more thread. So and what does Lincoln's party do? They back statutes, and Lincoln signs them to prohibit slavery in the national capital. 
to prohibit slavery in the territories in direct violation of the Dred Scott holding, daring the court, in effect, to repeat its egregious error rather than repudiate its precedent and abandon it, which is what, of course, Lincoln wants it to do. And then even more dramatically, there's the constitutional amendments, which Lincoln, as I just mentioned earlier, signs his name to that eliminates slavery altogether, not just in federal territory, but everywhere. Wow, that's a deprivation of property big time because there's no just compensation for that. That's just abolishing slave masters' property rights everywhere, immediately, and with no compensation whatsoever. That's actually Lincoln's vision. Dred Scott was wrong to overprotect property. What, what does the court do? It, it actually doesn't completely abandon the idea of substantive due process. Maybe it should, but it doesn't. And it overprotects property rights in the Lochner case, which are about property rights and contract rights of fat cat employers driving hard bargains with employees in, in sweatshops. And Roe is going to build, it's going to be a substantive due process case, and it's going to build on Lochner and Dred Scott, and Casey's going to repeat Roe and all that, and that's what Dobbs is repudiating, trying to cut substantive due process down to size and saying Casey was egregiously wrong, Roe was egregiously wrong. Oh, and we aren't the first courts to abandon egregiously wrong precedents. The court did that in the 1930s when it repudiated Lochner. And so that's actually one of the the precedents on precedent that Dobbs invokes is the 1930s repudiation of of substantive due process and the overprotection of property, which to repeat has roots in Lochner and also roots in Dred Scott. And our audience knows that Scalia makes a big deal of the Dred Scott case in his dissent in Casey, saying Roe was just, it wasn't just another Lochner, it was another Dred Scott. And so in effect, you see Scalia and Alito are aligning with Lincoln, who thought Dred Scott was bogus, with the 13th Amendment that actually overrules this undue protection of property vision. Um, so so I got to tell you, a listener that doesn't know what substantive due process is, is not going to understand this. Because uh, it's not understandable. It's actually just but a But what does it mean, theory. the actual term? Sub, what does that mean, substantive due process? That courts get to strike down laws that they don't like. That's what it means. Well, that's what it, yeah, but of course the court would not say that that's what it means. Yes, but, because the court won't say all sorts of things that might be true, but that make the court look stupid and bad. No, but okay, but it's still not, uh, uh, that's fine, but no one is going to understand this unless they understand what the court, what the court purports for it to mean. The court in Dred Scott has two sentences not the, of an Not act. in Dred Scott, later, you know, what, what, now when the court, or in recent you know, when the Warren court implements or the black, you know, when Blackman says substantive due process, what does he mean? He said, you know, ordered liberty, fundamental rights. You know, what do they mean? You can say green Thucydides or mustard plaster or green cheese. I'm telling you. And no, 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 I'm not. I'm not going to give these justices the credit for actually saying anything intelligible because they're not saying anything intelligible. What they're saying is. We, these laws are, have fair procedures 
and they're nevertheless unconstitutional. And that's what they're saying. And there's not any good now. There isn't in Roe. That's why John Ely says it doesn't look like constitutional law at all. Okay, it actually doesn't. And that's what I've always believed. The word substance says it all. We don't think this law is substantively justified because we don't like it. You know, we think it's just not a good law. That's that's substance. And that's the opposite of process. You see, now I'm going to move to a second thing that you could have said, because you say, well, gee, Akil, if that's so. Dobbs doesn't actually get rid of substantive due process. It just limits it. It cuts it down to size in a certain way using a case called Glucksburg. So let okay, me Okay, so actually- all this stuff is offline. So when, tell me when we're going back online. I, I, you can use all that stuff. That's fine. That's good. Okay. Yeah. Now, of course, audience members are going to say, Akil, what the hell are you talking about? Because maybe Dred Scott overprotects property, and maybe Lochner overprotects property in a certain way or economic power. But that's not what Roe and Casey are about. They're about liberty of a certain sort. Okay, fine. Let's actually now move away, though. But I'm saying the Constitution doesn't protect liberty as such any more than it protects property as such. It protects them both in a clause that says government can't deprive people of life, liberty, or property without due process of law, but presumably it can deprive people of liberty or property for that matter, or even life with fair procedures, with due process of law. But then you say, gee, are you saying that there are no protections above and beyond just protections of fair procedure? There are, and let me now move to a second closely related area of law. Here's what the Dred Scott Court could have said. It didn't. It could have said, well, there are unenumerated rights, and we won't call them substantive due process. We'll just call them Ninth Amendment rights. They're rights of the people. They're unenumerated, and one of the unenumerated rights of the people is, the Dred Scott Court could have said, the right of slave masters to take their slaves onto free soil. Federal free soil. The Ninth Amendment is a right against the federal government. And so when the federal government restricts the rights of slave masters in federal territory, it's violating an unenumerated Ninth Amendment right. You could say something like that. Now, then the question is, well, where do these rights come from, these unenumerated rights, and how should courts find them? Here's what an originalist would say. If they're rights of the people, we actually should find them in actual expressions of the people in our laws because state legislatures are elected by the people. Let's look at, for example, the laws that state legislatures pass. Let's look at the laws that Congress passes because Congress is elected by the people. Well, in Dred Scott, the Congress that's elected by the people is prohibiting slavery in the territories. Oh, and most states actually prohibit slavery. They're called free states. And they say, don't bring slaves to Massachusetts because we don't protect slave property here in Massachusetts or Connecticut or New York or what have you. So there's a second idea. We don't, so don't call it substitute due process because that's just gobbledygook. Call it unenumerated rights. And vis-a-vis the federal government, you could call it Ninth Amendment. And there'd be a method for finding unenumerated rights, looking at the vast pattern of 
laws, state and federal, that are expressions of the American people. If that's the test, Dred Scott is still bullshit. It's still an astonisher because the people in most of America are anti-slavery. They're free soil. And now let's actually apply that to states and localities because the Ninth Amendment, strictly speaking, limits the federal government. But there are unenumerated rights against state governments, not just procedural rights, but substantive rights. And they come from a Lincoln-era amendment, the 14th Amendment, which says no state shall make or enforce any law which shall bridge the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States. Now, where do we find those privileges or immunities of citizens? I say we find them by actually looking at state laws, state practices, state constitutions, federal laws as well. If that's the formulation, and again, I don't think that really gets you to Lochner because lots of states were trying to regulate misuse of economic power by employers in all sorts of ways, minimum wage laws, maximum hour laws, etc. I don't think it gets you to Roe, because Roe invalidates the laws of 49 of the states at the time, maybe even 50, depending on how you count New York. Roe is also inconsistent with federal statutes on the books. So I don't think that state-counting approach, trying to actually see what are the privileges and immunities of citizens of the United States by looking at actually state practices, that's not going to get you Lochner. It's not going to get you Roe, but it will actually get you to a framework in a case called Glucksburg that says, gee, if a whole bunch of states protect a certain liberty interest, then we, the court, are going to be open to the idea of enforcing that liberty interest against the outlier states. Now, Glucksburg calls that substantive due process, and Dobbs embraces Glucksburg. And in the ideal world, I don't think we'd call it substantive due process. We'd call it privileges and immunities, but you get to the same result, you see. But now, let me tell you about a different line on privileges and immunities and a different case. So I told you about Dobbs and Roe and Casey and originalism. Now let me tell you about Bruin, the gun case. It's also an originalist opinion, self-styled, as was Dobbs. And once again, we're going to see Lincoln and his party loom very large in this story. Let's go back to Dred Scott one more time. Dred Scott says not just that masters have an absolute right to take their slaves onto federal free soil, that federal, the federal government can't prohibit slavery in the territories. It says that, but it also says blacks can't be citizens, even if born free, even if they're they, they vote in their home state, which calls them a citizen, even if their grandfather voted in that state and, and fought in the American Revolution. Federally speaking, says Dred Scott, the black can't be citizens. Why not? Because Dred Scott says if blacks were citizens, they'd be entitled under Article 4, of the, not the Fourth Amendment, but Article 4 of the Constitution – to the privileges and immunities of citizens in sister states. And Dred Scott says one of the privileges and immunities of citizens is to keep and carry guns wherever they choose to go. And blacks can't be citizens because if they were, they'd have a right to keep and carry guns wherever they go, even in other states, and, and that would, that's unthinkable. So that's what Dred Scott says. 
Now, Lincoln's party, when it comes to power, he runs against Dred Scott, and the people support Lincoln, you see. They elect him. His attorney general writes an opinion saying, actually, blacks are citizens, notwithstanding what Dred Scott has said. They are entitled to passports. And, Andy, I think we actually talked about this in a previous episode, yes, right? Yes, mm-hmm. Correct. Blair. Attorney General Blair. And which episode? Do you remember? Yeah, I think it was the episode with, uh, with Ed Whalen. I think it was called The Court Astonishes. And because Lincoln said that Dred Scott was an astonisher in legal history. So Lincoln is disregarding precedent, 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 and because the precedent is egregiously wrong, he thinks, and his attorney general thinks, in the name of the Constitution. By the way, the court itself backs away from Dred Scott when it admits a black person to the Supreme Court bar. Charles Sumner is the person who introduces, sponsors this black person for membership, and you can't be a Supreme Court bar member if you're not a citizen of the United States. So the court itself, albeit not in a case or controversy has begun to move away from Dred Scott. Now, Lincoln dies, but his party survives, and they adopt a 14th Amendment whose first sentence overrules Dred Scott. It says everyone born in America, black or white, is a citizen of the United States, is entitled to citizenship. And it goes on to say that no state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges or immunities of citizens. So it says blacks are citizens, and it's agreeing with Dred Scott that what it means to be a citizen is to have certain privileges and immunities, not just in sister states when you, when you travel from New York to Connecticut or vice versa, but against your home state. And, oh, Reconstruction Congress, Lincoln's Congress, dominated by his party, the party that he founds, the Republican Party, They think that one of the rights, the privileges, immunities of black people as citizens is the right to actually keep and carry guns. And they say so in a companion statute to the 14th Amendment called the Freedmen's Bureau Bill of 1866, which we've talked about. Okay, so this is originalism. What did the framers of the 14th Amendment really think? That blacks are citizens? And that all citizens have privileges and immunities as citizens, and one of those privileges and immunities is a right to keep and carry guns, not just in a militia context, but more generally. I think women have rights to have guns in their homes for self-protection or to carry them when they're going to the market if they fear thugs or hoodlums. So this is originalism. What did the framers of the 14th Amendment think? They thought that people have a right to carry guns, and especially black people have a right to keep and carry guns, and they said that in the Freedmen's Bureau Bill. Now, that's Bruin, authored by a black person, by the way, talking about how you have to, in a key passage, that proper originalism focuses not just on the founding, which was about militias, but also maybe about how rights were understood at the time of the 14th Amendment. And in fact, it cites two scholars, one of whom is yours truly, Andy. And I say that not just not to boast, but our audience needs to understand that they should take seriously the ideas that I'm pushing because the Supreme Court is taking them seriously. If you want to understand what's going on in the Supreme Court, they're citing Akhil Amar, what he wrote a long time ago on all this stuff. And this is why, and this is what we're talking about at the end of this episode, there's a possibility that they're going to maybe listen to Akhil Amar when he says you need to rethink Fifth Amendment self-incrimination doctrine just like you needed to rethink gun doctrine or substantive due process doctrine. We're going to talk about in a couple of other areas shortly. But So here's now a second 
area. We talked about Dobbs. Now, Bruin, where I'm saying pay attention to Lincoln's vision and Lincoln's party's vision and not necessarily gilded era court decisions that are egregiously wrongly decided. So don't pay attention to Lochner. Pay attention to Lincoln's idea of not overprotecting property um, and not reading too much substantive content into the due process clause. Here, there was a case. It's from 1876. It's called Cruikshank. And it says, actually, the Bill of Rights doesn't protect private gun rights and also says it doesn't apply against state governments. And it's wrong on both of those points. And it's egregiously wrong on those points. And the court will eventually overrule it on those points. It will say in Heller, actually, the Second Amendment is about private gun carrying and, and gun keeping. And in a case called City of Chicago versus McDonald, that the Bill of Rights does apply against the space, and that includes the Second Amendment. Many other cases applied the Bill of Rights in other contexts. And Bruin is building on Heller and McDonald, which in originalist fashion are disregarding egregiously erroneous cases in the name of Lincoln's vision. And when it comes to rights other than the Second Amendment, the Warren courts did all that led by Hugo Black. So just as Dobbs is channeling 1937 when Lochner is tossed overboard, Bruin is channeling 1963 when the Warren court is actually incorporating all sorts of rights against states, overturning egregious precedents with expansive understandings of confrontation and compulsory process and and jury trial and and Fourth Amendment and the like, and applying these rights against states and localities. You located those gun rights in in the 14th Amendment um, in your analysis, and Heller doesn't do that. It doesn't, and that's so why I you don't, see. Yeah, I don't. Uh, so, yeah. Okay. Um. But but Alito writes City of Chicago versus McDonald. He's the same guy that writes Dobbs and in Bruin. It, uh, Justice Thomas is writing. He wrote an important concurrence in City of Chicago versus McDonald's all about the Fourteenth Amendment and privileges and use. We've now identified two areas, Andy, where we side with Lincoln against egregiously wrong precedents. We side with Lincoln's vision as against Dred Scott and Lochner, and we side with and Lincoln's par, uh, and his party's vision when it comes to incorporation and privileges and immunities and gun rights. Okay, and that's two areas. Now here's a third. What it means, Dred Scott. Back to Dred Scott again, because this is how Lincoln becomes president. Dred Scott basically says blacks can't be citizens. And Lincoln's party thinks they can be citizens, and they are citizens. Everyone born in America is a citizen. What it means to be a citizen is to have certain privileges and immunities, certain fundamental rights, and one of those rights is to be equal to all other citizens. That's Lincoln's basic idea, that we're all born equal, we're all created equal. What does he say at Gettysburg? Dedicates the proposition that all men are created equal. Equal. Now, Jefferson meant maybe one thing by that, and if you were an originalist circa 1790, you might have one vision, but Lincoln has a different and more expansive vision than Jefferson because Jefferson is a slaveholder and a hypocrite, you see, and Lincoln is fiercely anti-slavery. He believes that all persons are born 
equal. If, if you're born in America, you're an equal citizen. That's what he believes. And his party gets that encoded in the first sentence of the 14th Amendment that everyone born in America is born a citizen, born a free and equal citizen, born with fundamental rights, privileges, and immunity of citizenship that the states can't mess with and that the federal government can't mess with. And one of those rights is the equality right, okay, that people are born equal whether they're born black or white. Now, what does the court do with all of that? It ignores that in Plessy versus Ferguson. What does eventually doctrine do? It overturns that. Brown versus Board of Education tosses Plessy overboard. It, in effect, says equal means equal because Plessy was egregiously wrong and Brown was right and Lincoln's vision is right. So here's yet another example. And Dobbs mentions this, you see. Dobbs says, gee, if the court can overturn Lochner in 1937 because it's egregiously wrong, and if the court can toss Plessy overboard in 1954 because it's egregiously wrong, we can do the same thing when it comes to Roe and Casey. But once again, this is now a third area where we have actually another gilded era case that's wrong. This one's Plessy versus Ferguson, and it's tossed overboard, just like Crookshank is tossed overboard on the issue of gun rights and incorporation, just as Lochner is tossed overboard. And there's a case prior to Lochner, actually in the 1890s, called Allgaier, which is the granddaddy of the Lochner era vision of substantive due process. It's 1897 or so. So in area after area, we're tossing overboard these 1890s cases that are betraying, that are not following Lincoln's constitutional vision from the 1860s. So now we have three areas where it's Lincoln, Lincoln, Lincoln. Now here's a fourth. We talked about Hylton earlier and what counts as a direct tax and not a direct tax. And Lincoln thought that an income tax was completely valid and permissible. He signs an income tax bill into law, and the court in the 1890s actually says income taxes are unconstitutional unless they're apportioned a certain way, which is going to make it very difficult to have a, an income tax that taxes um, uh, capital, um, uh, rental income above and beyond wage labor income. So the court, in a case called Pollock, this is our previous episode, basically misreads the Constitution, undoes Lincoln's vision, here now the people overturn what the court has done in the Constitutional Amendment. From the progressive era, you see a moment of liberal egalitarian reform, and now we're back to Lincoln's vision again. So there's yet another area where an 1890s case was egregiously wrong, and we should go with Lincoln. So now we've got Pollock, which is egregiously wrong, and the people overturned it. And we've got Allgaier and Lochner, which were egregiously wrong, and the court overturned that in 1937. And we've got Plessy which is egregiously wrong, and the court basically tosses that overboard in Brown versus Board of Education, and, and Crookshank, which was egregiously wrong on incorporation and guns. So four different times, Lincoln's vision ultimately prevails against egregiously erroneous precedents. And there, the overturning occurred on incorporation, mainly in the 1960s, 1963, with the Warren Court, and on guns a little bit later on with the city of Chicago versus McDonald's case. 
And now I'm going to say, oh, when it comes to self-incrimination, we need to do the same thing. We need to go with Lincoln's vision. He signs into law a bill that has narrow testimonial immunity. That's what we should go with. But the court stupidly said otherwise in an 1890s case called Councilman versus Hitchcock, which we talked about before, building on another erroneous gilded era case called Boyd, which smushed together the Fourth and the Fifth Amendments. And together, Boyd and Councilman gave us the exclusionary rule, which excludes too much fruit, and gave us the Councilman versus Hitchcock, which excludes too much fruit. And both times, they're actually not really heeding Lincoln's vision and, and his party's vision, Lyman Trumbull's vision. Lyman Trumbull actually favors this 1862 statute. And if you're with Lyman Trumbull when it comes to the Freedmen's Bureau bill, and if you're with Lyman Trumbull when it comes to black citizenship and some of the other things we've been talking about, you should be with Lyman Trumbull and Abe Lincoln on self-incrimination as well. Well, I can see why you should be with Lincoln. Um, but, I mean, Trumbull could be right on one thing and wrong on another. And, and I'm not sure that these are really that closely related. In other words, they don't seem to have the same big idea here. They don't have the same big idea. What I am telling you is pay attention to track records. The 1890s court does not have a good track record. Lincoln does have a good track record. And I like to think I've got a pretty good track record, truthfully. And I'm giving you, though, a primer on originalism that shows actually that in, in at least four other areas, isn't this interesting? Egregiously wrong 1890s plus or minus uh, precedents have already been tossed overboard in the name of constitutional correctness. And all four of those times we can see Abraham. It's not George Washington. It's Abe Lincoln, really, that who is the, the dominant sort of figure here when it comes to income tax, when it comes to racial equality when it comes to incorporation of the Bill of Rights against the states and gun-toting for ordinary citizens, and when it comes to substantive due process. Okay, so you've talked about you know an evolution of the Constitution and how it comes down to important moments in history, but of course the bottom line here is that the Constitution does have a certain uh, evolution over time. Um, so one evolution is, is accomplished by the amendments. Another evolution is arguably accomplished by correcting of errors so that when you know making amends is one way but another way is when the court recognizes its own its own errors and if indeed the court is wrong about in its fifth amendment uh, jurisprudence that that your view of that the uh, of where the court should be lincoln's view of where the court should be in terms of the uh, early 1860s law that we talked about based on uh, state versus kelly level uh, immunity is correct well, we're not there now, I think everyone would, would say. Um, so how do we get there? How do we get from, from, from here to there? How do we get from where the, the Fifth Amendment jurisprudence is now, the guilty trilemma, if you will? Um, how do we get from that to these big ideas of truth and innocence protection as being the basis of the way the Fifth Amendment self-incrimination protection functions? Yeah, so sometimes the Constitution itself is bad and that needs to be – there needs to be a constitutional amendment to correct that. So the Constitution itself actually was pro-slavery, and we needed an amendment, the 13th Amendment, to eliminate that. So sometimes the, the fundamental flaws in the Constitution itself. The original Constitution didn't have a Bill of Rights. That was a mistake. 
be added a Bill of Rights. The original Constitution provided for state legislative election of senators, and we needed an amendment to basically constitutionalize the idea of direct election of senators. There, there, were, there were some workarounds that states had actually done at the state level, but they, they weren't entrenched in the written constitution the way the 17th Amendment did. So, so sometimes you need a constitutional amendment to correct a mistake that's in the DNA of the constitution itself. Now you're saying, well, what about judicial errors? Not, they're not in the constitution, they're in the precedent, they're in the case law. Sometimes judicial errors have been corrected by constitutional amendment, as when we, the people of the United States, overturned, for example, Dred Scott. Dred Scott says blacks can't be citizens. The first sentence of the 14th Amendment says, oh, yes, they can. That's a direct overruling of Dred Scott via a constitutional amendment. Pollock said you can't have a federal income tax on rental income without a certain kind of apportionment. And the 16th Amendment, we the people said, oh, yes, you can. So those are examples. They're not the only ones, but let me just pick those two because we've talked about them today and in previous episodes of the podcast where the people are overturning court cases. I think erroneous court cases. I think egregiously erroneous court cases. But, of course, the people don't have to say that the case was egregiously erroneous when they overturn it. They can amend for, for any reason. Maybe the cases one could say were correctly decided, but the, the people just have a different vision going forward. But when the court overrules itself, not in the constitutional amendment, but now the court overturns itself, it's going to typically need to do so by saying we made a mistake before, it's an error, or there's some other good reason for changing our case law. I'll give you an example of another good reason. Maybe we weren't wrong before, but doctrine has developed in various ways, and the doctrines have developed in slightly contradictory ways. They're different lines of cases, and they come to conflict, and we have to choose one over the other. They can't both be right deep down, and so we prune one prong, one branch, to extend and preserve the other branch. There are other reasons for overturning cases, but the question that you're asking, Andy, is Gee, given that we've got this self-incrimination doctrine on the books that excludes not just testimony that has been compelled outside of the witness stand in the criminal case, but anything that that testimony leads to, fruits and the like, given that that's the existing rule, it's called castigar, how do we get to a Mars world where only the testimony is excluded and nothing else, no fruits. And just to repeat, Amar says this fits the words of the Constitution perfectly because as long as my words are never introduced against me directly in a criminal case, I will never have been compelled to be a witness against myself in a criminal case. Even if you forced me to spill my guts to the grand jury or in a civil deposition or in congressional testimony or state legislative testimony, even if I'm obliged to talk and talk truthfully upon penalty of perjury perhaps, or if not that, at least some sort of legal penalty and pain of contempt, even if you forced me to, to talk, if I talked outside the criminal case and those words that I was forced to utter are never introduced against me, 
in the criminal case, the Fifth Amendment will never have been violated. That's Akeel's idea. That's Lincoln's idea when he signs an 1862 statute building on an earlier state case called People versus Kelly. So in that world, Akeel can be forced to spill his guts before the grand jury, and he can be asked, did you do it? Yes. Did you use a gun? Yes. Where's the gun? It's in my drawer. Okay. The words yes, yes, and it's in my drawer can't be introduced against Akeel in a criminal case, but they can introduce, the authorities can, the gun itself. And they can say we found the gun in Akeel's drawer, and we found the gun in Akeel's drawer with Akeel's fingerprints on it, and we found the gun in Akeel's drawer with Akeel's fingerprints on it, and there's actually the blood of the victim nearby on the gun or in the desk or whatever. Okay. How do we get to that world? Because today, a, a Castigar would say that's clearly impermissible because the gun was obviously the fruit of this compelled testimony in the grand jury room or a congressional investigation hearing or a state legislative hearing or civil deposition or what have you. A civil case brought by a private citizen or by the government itself. How do you get to appeal to your world? And it's surprisingly easy, Andy. There Four different ways, four different paths I can get to the summit of Mount Everest. And Cheers. Any, so any one of these will do it. You don't have to have all, all four. Really, if you have one, you get the other ones uh, in you effect. Have, you're at the summit, and, and, and that's all you need. Okay. So here's one way. Build on Schmerber. Because remember I told you that a lot of times cases are overturned because a certain case generates – conflicting lines of doctrine and as these conflicting lines of doctrine get built out it becomes increasingly clear that one of them has to go schmerber is a, an important and radical case the case just to remind everyone says the government can seize a keel stick a needle in his arm take out his own blood and use that blood against a keel's will to convict Akil of a crime if the blood shows that there's alcohol in it and he's charged with drunk driving or drugs in it and he's charged with drunk driving or if it's an ABDO or DNA match with blood at the crime scene of a murder. So Schmerber was 5-4 to four when decided in the 1960s, but today it's 9-0. And it's 9-0 on the theory that that's not, you're not forcing Akil to be a witness against himself. Okay, But now Schmerber actually has been extended because you might say, oh, the reason it's not a violation of the Fourth Amendment isn't, as Akil says, because blood is reliable and we should admit all reliable evidence. It's really you're not forcing Akil to use his will, his mind, his consciousness, his soul against himself in any way because you could have just gotten blood from a corpse. So that's true. That's Schmerber on his facts. But later cases have extended Schmerber with narrow views of the Fifth Amendment. And, and I'm going to say, if you extend that narrowness, gets me to the summit. Okay? A later case has said, for example, oh, Akil can be forced to say his name. Donald J. Trump actually said his name. Okay? You can't get someone to say You can't get a corpse to say his name. That's traveling through the will, through the mind, through the soul. You can force under line of cases building on Schmerber, you can force the defendant to actually give a voice exemplar, to actually say, 
stick them up or I'm going to kill you tonight and actually then have an eye, eye witness or ear witness to be maybe more precise. Think, yes, that's the voice I heard on the phone. Yes, the voice, that's the voice I heard in the robbery. Or use technology to actually, if there's an audio, if there's a tape of the original crime, to compare that to the voice exemplar that we force people to give. And, and if they try to fake their voice, that's interesting too. We can force people, and, that, and you can't get voice from a, a corpse. We, today, this is existing doctrine. We can force people to give a handwriting sample, a handwriting exemplar. And you can't get that from a corpse. And if they fake their handwriting or try to, oh, that might be very, very suggestive of, of their guilt. And Andy, I know you were telling me a, a story about handwriting because you're an yeah. ophthalmologist. Yeah, it's interesting that uh, in in ophthalmology, um, there's different ways to detect whether um, a patient is malingering, is is pretending to have a particular illness. Now, you know the patients aren't the enemy, but you know, but you do want to get the truth, um, much as you do in the criminal case. But uh, you do want you do want to get the truth, and if you can't help the patient if you don't have the right diagnosis. So. Um, uh, so anyway, uh, and actually, when I took my when I took my boards, my oral exam to to uh, be board certified, my oral boards, um, there are nine different ways to uh, find out if a patient's uh, malingering regarding their their vision. I, I was asked to produce to say five of them, but I'm only going to give you one today, which is um, you ask the patient to uh, sign their name, and uh, a blind patient will sign their name perfectly well. Um, they'll you know, they'll be nice and straight and it'll look like, like a signature and you'll be able to read their name assuming that their signature, uh, it'll look like their, their regular signature when they were cited, assuming that they were cited at one point. Whereas a malingering patient will be all over the place to try to convince you that, they, uh, that, 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 they're, that they're somehow impaired. Which makes sense because if I close my eyes, I can sign my name. Yes, yeah. exactly. But, yeah, how cool. Okay, so... The Schmerber line of cases says you can be, um, we can take your blood, but we can also force you. We can subpoena you to give a handwriting sample or a voice sample or to say your name. So here's the case. How about if we subpoena you to hand over your blood as monitored by your lawyers who are going to certify all this? Ooh, I think we can, given Schmerber, and given all these other cases, I think that's pretty clear. So now we can grab your arm and take your blood, case one. Because of all these other intermediate cases, we can also subpoena you to hand over your blood. Hand over a vial of your blood, please. Now here's obviously the next case to get to Amar world. Please, we subpoena you to hand over any bloody knives that you might happen to have in your home. And that and analogically looks kind of similar to handing over your blood, don't you see? You just want your blood on any, on any knife that you might have. And your lawyers have to help you with this because they're officers of the court, you see. They can't cooperate in an ongoing crime, an obstruction of justice. And once we've done that, Andy, well, if I can, if I, if I can get the court to say that someone can be subpoenaed to hand over a vial of his blood and any bloody knife, I would think the, the next step would just be subpoenaing him to, to hand over any gun that he might happen to have on the premises or any other fruit of the crime or anything else. Oh, and now we're in a Mar world. Yes, but that's if you if you know what what it is that he has, right? In other words, it's a little different. Were you saying, okay, you know, uh, 
what was the murder weapon or something like that. You, you, know. you don't have to have probable cause to issue a subpoena, interesting enough, which is another piece of evidence that you don't need probable cause for each and every search and seizure. Because I think a subpoena is a kind of search and seizure episode. But no, you can be subpoenaed for any X that you might happen to have. So you, how specific are you required to be? Can you be as general as it says? Hand over anything that any murder weapons that you have. Could you say that? Was, so now you see actually how you, you and, and and maybe the first case you know we 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 bring is we well, have a lot of evidence to believe that there's a specific murder weapon and then you broaden it out. But I'm, that's one path to Everest using Schmerber. Okay, starting with Schmerber and the line of cases that build from Schmerber, which include, to repeat, handwriting exemplars and voice exemplars and being forced to say your name. So we've gone beyond the corpse test. We're using people's wills, their minds against them in, um, to, to generate stuff that's admissible in the criminal case against them. So that's, that's path one. Okay. And again, this is Really what we're trying to do here through these different, the summit, what is the summit? The summit is to be able to get fruits. All fruits in. And in that world, here's what I don't get to tell the jury. I don't get to tell the jury that we got this vial of blood from Akil himself, that Akil told us where to find the gun. Maybe we can't do that because now actually that's close to introducing Akil's words against him in the criminal case, but the gun is usually going to be good enough with my fingerprints on it or found it in my home or wherever. Or so this, you like, can say where you got it. You just can't say how you know that it was there. Yes. Um, and then there are going to be some slight borderline cases. Can we say something that Akil told us, but we can't use his actual words? Okay, so there are going to be some little borderline cases, but, but mainly the, the gun's going to come in, fruit in, uh, testimony out. Okay. okay. So that's, that's one. That's one. What's, what's another? Miranda. Ah. Miranda is rooted in the Fifth Amendment. Um, it's not quite now. It's not quite a criminal case, you see, because maybe you haven't been arrested yet, you haven't been indicted yet, but you're summoned to the police station and they start asking you questions. And the concern was you're afraid that if you don't answer, the police are going to harm you in some way. They're maybe going to beat you up or they're just not going to let you go. You're just going to be detained infinitely. And so Miranda obliges the government to tell you that actually you don't have to talk and, and that if you do talk, your words can be introduced against you. So that's Miranda. It's rooted in Fifth Amendment concerns, but doctrine admits that certain Miranda situations do not technically involve compulsion. It's prophylactic. Merely being asked questions, being given sandwiches and, and donuts and coffee may not be compulsion, but they're close enough possibly to compulsion that we require a Miranda warning. Now, what happens if the Miranda warning isn't given? Here's what doctrine today says. Any words any unmirandized words that you utter have to be excluded from your criminal case, but any fruit of those unmirandized words is admissible as long as it's a mere Miranda violation and not actually a technical Fifth Amendment violation. If it didn't cross the, the compulsion line, fruits come in, but the words are excluded. And now Akil just says, oh, well, if that's already the rule for Miranda violations. All we have to say is actually the same rule should apply in all sorts of other civilized situations, even if there is technically legal compulsion. 
in a civil deposition, in a grand jury, in a congressional investigation, in a state legislative investigation, where you're obliged to speak and you're immunized, but the only immunity you should get is that your words are excluded, which is, in effect, the only thing that happens for mere Miranda violations even today. So second pathway is just treat Fifth Amendment violations as if they were are basically identical to Miranda violations. And to repeat, Miranda is rooted in the Fifth Amendment. So the Miranda line of cases you see is another one that if you extend it out a certain way, oh, I get to the summit. So really it sounds like what you're saying is here's something which exists now, okay, a particular rule that exists now. And the logical extension of that rule leads us to a contradictory area, something that contradicts the, uh, the the current Fifth Amendment doctrine. And given that that contradiction exists, it has to be resolved. So yep. let's resolve it in favor of your vision, uh, yes. not in favor of the current vision. Right. So let's expand Schmerber. And if we expand Schmerber just a little bit, we get to the summit. Let's expand Miranda ideas and doctrine just a little bit. We get to the summit. So what would be, in the case of Miranda, so you need an actual case, right? So give, can you think of a case that might come up where you could say, oh, this is actually only a slight extension of Miranda. What, what, what could happen? Almost never need a case. All I need is any justice, anyone. And we'll talk about, you know, I've got, five, you know, nine possibilities just to put something in dicta in a pure Miranda case or something. Saying, gee, scratching his or her head. Why do we have a different rule for the Fifth Amendment than we do Miranda? That's, you know, that's an interesting question. You know, I'm sure that we'll need to address this in future cases. The lawyers will get the point. If you build it, they will come. They'll find a case. I they'll, see. They'll we'll get Dick Wolf on it. Absolutely. Um, or, or Kevin Costner, for that matter, Field of Dreams. Okay, so that's a, that's the second path, um, and you say there are two others. Yes, let's talk about Ollie North. This is the, the third is the Ollie North path. He was forced to testify before Congress, and he said, I don't want to, and they said, we give you Fifth Amendment immunity. But the immunity they were obliged to give, given Castigar, is his words couldn't be introduced against him or any fruit that the words led to. Now, remember, Congress in 1862 wanted a narrow rule, and that was Lincoln's rule, and he signed his name to that, and the court said that's not good enough in a case called Councilman versus Hitchcock from the 1890s. But Oliver North actually was obliged to testify before Congress, and when he was prosecuted, the, the D.C. Circuit eventually tossed out the prosecution because they said some of the things that came into his case look fruity to us. Here's what the Justice Department tried to do. It didn't want North actually to testify because it knew that that would make a, a criminal prosecution harder. But even before North's testimony, it actually created what's called the Chinese wall. It had certain prosecutors working on the case and they weren't allowed to watch the television uh, uh, hearings because these uh, hearings were televised and they were supposed to put as much evidence as they could into a vault so that there was a certified and, and time stamped so that they could prove that they knew all this stuff and they had all this stuff prior to and independent of North's compelled congressional testimony. But the D.C. Circuit said that's not good enough because some of the people who took the stand against North had watched his televised testimony. Their recollections were refreshed by his testimony. So their witnessing was a fruit. Uh, their witnessing in the criminal case against North was a fruit of North's compelled testimony and um, 
and, and that was impermissible. Now, here's um, Amar's proposal. That first step, at least for congressional testimony, we should have the narrow rule, the 1862 statute. We should revive that 1862 statute. It might still technically be on the books. I haven't checked. But that was good enough simply saying the words are excluded but nothing else. Now, we can do that simply – actually, this is a third path, but there, there's a fork in the path. We can do it one of two ways. We can just first say ah, there's special rules for congressional testimony because we don't – because Congress needs to find out what happened, and we don't want to actually – interfere with Congress's legitimate fact-gathering function, which might lead to proposing a new statute or a new constitutional amendment. We shouldn't interfere with that. That's really important in a republic. And so we shouldn't basically make it impossible for Congress to do its job without compromising the Justice Department's ability to do its job. So we can have special rules for congressional testimony. And then once we've done that, I think we'd say, gee, you know, why is congressional testimony any different from state legislative testimony? And why is that any different from a grand jury, which is also trying to figure out what happened and, and get to the bottom of things? And you see it could unravel all the way toward just testimonial immunity and nothing more. Or second, different way, gee, how do we decide what's fruity in the North situation? In the North itself, the government had to prove to the D.C. Circuit by very compelling uh, – by a very high standard of evidence – that nothing in its case was remotely a consequence of a fruit of North's televised testimony, and that was really hard. Okay, So we just lower the burden of proof. Now the government has to prove this more likely than not, um, that nothing is fruity rather than it's overwhelmingly clear by, beyond reasonable doubt that nothing is fruity. Oh, and now once we do that, we actually change the, the standard of proof. We shift the burden of proof. It's now on the defendant to prove that his compelled testimony generated all this fruit. And now we actually say, oh, the defendant has to prove that beyond a reasonable doubt. It's utterly clear that the government was relying on stuff that it could never have found but for this compelled testimony. Oh, and now here's the final little piece de resistance. We just presume that fruits come to light, that, that there would have been an inevitable discovery with enough time the government would have found this piece of evidence or some other piece of evidence that shows you're guilty. So, so we just presume that, that, that the truth emerges, that justice outs. These are just manipulating little teeny tiny rules within the courtroom about burdens of proof and the like. And uh, eventually you get to, if you presume all fruit would have been found one way or another or its equivalent would have been found one way or another. And the equivalent, basically, if, if you introduce the fruit rather than the equivalent, it's just harmless error. You you take doctrines that exist already in law, harmless error and inevitable discovery, and um, or a slightly different pathway, um, starting with Oliver North and congressional investigations, and they take you to the summit of Everest. They take you, basically, to the 1862 statute generalized. So that's sort of the, uh, the true North fork, I guess you would call it. <laughs> Now, there's a pathway. Um, I'm not going to go into it in detail because it's a little bit more technical, but audience members who are interested can, can read the article, Fifth Amendment First Principles, that we're going to be putting on the show notes and that we've put on the show notes in previous weeks. And that has to do with Murphy, right? Just yeah, case called Murphy. Mm -hmm. In two or three sentences, there's a real problem if there's a state investigation 
and they force people to talk. And now that state investigation, because they force people to talk, are making it hard for there to be a federal prosecution if that federal prosecution can't prove that it's utterly independent of evidence that came to light because of the state investigation. And now states are interfering with federal prosecutions. That's not so good. Because of that, the court actually cut back on councilmen. They moved from transactional immunity to use plus use fruits immunity, but to actually solve the problem altogether, we need to move from use plus use fruits immunity just to the narrow use immunity, which is also called testimonial immunity. I know that was very technical for the details. See the article. Okay, so you told me uh, a story once that you uh, about Justice Breyer, I think it was, that uh, he uh, you made some good points about oh you know you this is such a good argument uh, boss or you know whatever um, and he just held up five fingers. Yes, the game is getting to five. He wrote a dissent. It's his first year on the court. A case called Lopez. Um, and he wasn't trying to write the dissent. He was trying to persuade the majority, but he only had four votes. And he once, you know, jokingly told me about William Brennan. William Brennan, very famously, he was like the point guard on the Warren court. He always kind of was in on the action, making the play happen. And it was said very famously, he, he was a magician at counting to five. He told his clerks on day one, he says, what's the most important thing you need to understand about the Supreme Court? You know, and, and some of the clerks says, the Constitution is the supreme law of the land or equal justice under law. They had all these lofty ideas. He says, no, the most important thing to understand is how to count to five. Okay, that's the game. Okay, so Breyer once told me this you know, story. He says, Akhil, I, I, I've now finally figured out why Brennan was able again and again to count to five. I said, well, tell me, boss. He said, he started with seven. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Breyer didn't start with seven because, you know, when he's on the court, his vision is basically a minority vision, um, typically. Okay. So, so the I question have- is, how do, how do you, you know, you've got these great ideas. There are four different ways to get to the summit. But the summit has a big five on written on top of it. So how do you get to five justices? Okay, so let me just work out. I'm going to start from the conservatives, and the conservatives because the liberals I think are going to be hostile to this. I actually try to show in ways that I'm not going to go into in exquisite detail. This will be better for innocent defendants. It'll be worse for guilty defendants, but it will be better for innocent defendants. The broader a Schmerber idea we have, the more DNA we bring in, the more blood we bring in, the better that's going to be for innocent people because actually DNA not only convicts the guilty, it can exonerate the innocent. We talked about habeas earlier and whether mere innocence suffices, but suppose the prosecutor says, oh, this new DNA evidence that you're pointing to that we didn't have at the time of the trial – it doesn't prove that you're innocent. It just proves that someone else was there. Maybe you had an accomplice in crime. And if all that we can prove with this new DNA is that it's not your DNA, that's not necessarily exculpatory. But if we can find out because we actually have much more DNA testing because we're expanding Schmerber in all sorts of ways, if we know whose DNA it was and we know that person committed all sorts of crimes just like this and was convicted in other cases of doing that and never had an accomplice and you never met that person maybe you look like that person or you know there were circumstantial pieces of evidence that resulted in, in your conviction but now that we actually know who really did it because we're using schmerber and dna much more expensively innocent people will walk 
free from death row. So I actually believe that my role to bring in um, more physical evidence will be um, it'll be better catching the guilty, yes, but it will also in some cases exonerate the innocent, and, and we should multiply that by 100 for any innocent man wrongly convicted that we could set free. Um, but truthfully, I'm not so that, – that's my pitch, especially to the liberals on the court. I'm not so sure they're going to buy it because criminal defense attorneys are mainly in the business of defending guilty folks, most people who are indicted and charged happen to be guilty. So, And the liberals on the court tend to be more sympathetic to just criminal defense attorneys more generally. So I'm not sure I get them. I'm going to start at the other end. So I start, I think my easiest target would be Justice Sam Alito. He's a former prosecutor. He doesn't like um, um, uh, defendants all that much especially guilty defendants. That's a joke. Of course, he, he, the, the joke is especially because he, he doesn't want to convict the innocent any more than Ben Franklin did. But I think my truth-focused, innocence, protection, all fruits in, let's cut back on the exclusionary rule and a Fifth Amendment immunity, I think that vision might be very attractive to Sam Alito, given who he is and where he comes from, which is the criminal justice system. And he doesn't like it when guilty people walk free, when there's perfectly reliable evidence of their guilt that we're not allowed to use for some stupid technical reason that the American people never really accepted. So I think he's my most likely vote. I think Justice Thomas is a a possible second because he's a serious originalist. And once I persuade him that originalism doesn't support the exclusionary rule, that we should actually have more remedies for innocent people instead of exclusion of of evidence for guilty people, I think he might be open to all of that. So I think he's a a real second possibility. And he's shown his willingness to overturn all sorts of precedents in the name of originalism, as has Justice Alito in Dobbs. So I think those are my two most likely prospects. And Since you're asking me honestly, they've both cited me in originalist opinions, Sam Alito, six times, I think, in City of Chicago versus McDonald, and he did it again in Dobbs, and Justice Thomas cited me in his concurrence in City of Chicago versus McDonald, and again in the majority opinion, and in the criminal justice area on confrontation clause, Justice Thomas and I have actually championed the same idea of confrontation that led to actually overturning of, of I'm not going to go into details. It's called the Crawford Revolution. So those are serious prospects for me for this vision. Broadening out from that, I think neither Justice Amy Coney Barrett nor Justice Brett Kavanaugh has a big dog in the fight. They haven't committed themselves to broad ideas of exclusion of evidence yet. It's it's harder for people to backtrack on opinions that they've already issued. That's a harder psychological thing than to get it right on a clean slate when they have no track record. They don't have to admit their own personal past error. And I think they're both open to originalism, and I don't think they have any particular soft spots for guilty defendants as such. So they're genuine prospects. That's four. Chief Justice Roberts is, I think, maybe my fifth. I'm just not so sure about Justice Gorsuch. He's, I think, very independent-minded, a little bit mercurial, maybe quirky. I don't know if this would tickle his fancy or not. It it might not. But here's why it might tickle John Roberts' fancy. 
And we talked about this in previous episodes because I'm influenced by my mentors. And we've had episodes about my mentors like Charles Black, Telford Taylor, Walter Dellinger. Well, who were John Roberts' mentors? I think that two people he clerked for, Henry Friendly and Chief Justice William Rehnquist, Henry Friendly on the United States Court of Appeals for the Second Circuit. Henry Friendly wrote the leading article of his era on self-incrimination clause, and he had a very narrow understanding of it. His vision, it wasn't quite my idea, but it's somewhat close to my idea. So Henry Friendly hated the exclusionary rule and had real skepticism about broad self-incrimination immunity. Okay, and, and that's the person from whom John Roberts sort of learned his law. He really looked up to Henry Friendly. Henry Friendly was the greatest judge of the 20th century, never to reach the, the Supreme Court. And William Rehnquist didn't like the exclusionary rule, didn't like broad exclusions of reliable evidence in criminal cases. So I think Roberts would be open to these ideas. Now, one other thing, Friendly himself clerked for Brandeis. And I've talked in previous episodes about how Brandeis is also an important influence on Roberts. I think Brandeis was more open to exclusionary rule ideas. So Roberts is, in this sense, the, the product of a mixed marriage of a certain sort. His, his judicial role models, Brandeis, Friendly, and Rehnquist, didn't quite agree on all of this. But I think he's another possibility. And as I mentioned, Neil Gorsuch styles himself an originalist Silas himself is sort of very open-minded and willingness to, to hear interesting originalist theories. He hasn't been on the court um, as, as long as have Thomas and, and Alito, which is why I'm, I'm a little bit more confident about the, kind of, the kinds of originalists they are. And, and, and I have, it, especially in Justice Alito's case, also a sense of his general vision of the criminal justice system, which is similar to mine, that it should be about truth overall, uh, above all. So that's how I possibly could get to, to five, even six, I guess, in theory, nine, if the liberals understood that these rules properly understood will ultimately redound to the benefit of innocent defense. Let me say it one other way. Ordinary people don't like, Americans don't like watching guilty people walk free, grinning, especially when we have the evidence. You know, how many episodes of Law and Order are all about that? It just seems you know, grotesque that a murderer, a rapist walks free grinning at the victim in the case of a rape or the victim's family in the case of a murder. And it's often a he and the victim is often a she. So so it just offends our deep root sense of justice. Now, if that's what we think the criminal justice system is, guilty people getting off all the time on these crummy technicalities, we're going to be less inclined to fund public defenders and all the rest. Because we, we just think, you know, it's a purposeless game in which it's not about truth, justice, and, the, and innocence protection. But if doctrine moves more in the direction of innocence protection, yes, Scalia's ideas about innocence not sufficing in habeas will be weaker, okay? Because we're going we're gonna to center doctrine much more on innocence, and that's going to have implications, you see, for habeas jurisprudence as well. Say it one last way. Very distinguished judge, who was also a great scholar, wrote a very important article. It's been cited many times by the Supreme Court. Here's its title. Is Innocence 
irrelevant. And the obvious point is, no, it can't be. Okay, innocence, of course, has to be, you know, everything. The author of that article was Henry J. Friendly. Okay, well, just going back for a minute, since you ended here on talking about Henry Friendly, you talked about him as a mentor. And, and on America's Constitution Today, the subject of mentors takes us to some very exciting news for our audience. Um, we are, and you'll see how it connects to mentorship in a moment, we want to tease, we want to announce uh, that we have confirmed a, variety, a number of very distinguished guests uh, coming up in the near future. And Akil, why don't you tell us a little about who they will be? Uh, and many of them are friends, and, and some in particular, one in particular is a, is a very special mentor. So we're going to have Amy Howe from SCOTUS Blog. I've been a fanboy of SCOTUS Blog for a very long time. Some of our audience knows what SCOTUS Blog is all about. Others, oh, you're in for a treat. So Amy Howe is going to come and tell us about her life as a Supreme Court journalist, as a court watcher par excellence, as a litigator before the United States Supreme Court. We have a very interesting biographer of one of the more important justices of the 20th century, Felix Frankfurter. There's a new book, a biography of him by Brad Snyder. It's getting a lot of attention, and we're going to bring Brad here to discuss and defend his views about Frankfurter. As our audience knows, I'm more of a Hugo Black fan. Hugo Black and Felix Frankfurter were often on opposite sides of the fence, so stay tuned for that. Speaking of books, book tours, Brad is on a book tour. So is my dear friend Nina Totenberg. She has a new book out about her relationship to Ruth Bader Ginsburg, and she has agreed to come on our podcast a little bit later in the fall. And uh, we've got some fun stories uh, to recount, um, she and I, about all sorts of stuff that we've done together over the years. And of course, since I told the audience about John Roberts in particular and the people for whom, the, uh, the judges for whom he clerked, who were mentors to him, William Rehnquist and Henry Friendly, and the people for whom they clerked in turn, Robert Jackson and Louis Brandeis. It's, of course, only appropriate that I tell my audience a little bit more at some point about the great jurist for whom I clerked, the great Stephen Breyer, and I'll tell those stories. And I'm happy to announce that I'm going to tell some of those stories with Justice Breyer as, uh, as part of the podcast. He's agreed to, to come on later in the fall and, and share with us some of his thoughts about, among other things, his mentors, the person for whom he clerked on the Supreme Court, and his teachers and role models in life and law, and all sorts of other things as well. So, wow, we've got some great episodes coming up, Andy. Yeah, it's very exciting. And, of course, the, these have all been in the works for a long time. In fact, our, our uh, webpage for America's Constitution has told everyone that Nina Totenberg is going to be on since January of 2021. And, and we told the truth, but uh, it took a while. But it's, that's our fault, not, uh, not Nina's. So, uh, anyway, very exciting news. We're, we're, I'm really looking forward to this. And, uh, you know, of course, Professor Amar may show up as well. So remember, tell three friends. Yes. And that's and now you've got a lot to tell them. So until next week.
Happy Constitution Week. Lost the tear. Thank you.